listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. lot of misunderstandings about marriage nowadays that all it really takes is love, how the family is comprised, gender, inclination really is irrelevant as long as there's love. And then there's that old soulmate myth that you need to find your soulmate. How dangerous is that myth to actual marriages? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us for the case for natural marriage, Dr. Bragg Wilcox. He's professor of sociology and director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. He is the Future of Freedom Fellow at the Institute for Family Studies and author of the new book, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. Dr. Wilcox, welcome back. Great to be here, Todd. What are some signs of hope for the future of the institution of marriage? I think there are really two signs of hope, and one is that we are seeing a slight uptick in the share of kids being raised in stable married families. You know, a lot of people think that one in two marriages end in divorce, but we've actually seen that trend go down. That's good news because kids are more likely to thrive in stable marriages. And the other piece of good news that my book, Get Married, reports is there is no group of Americans who are more likely to be thriving in terms of having more meaning in their lives, uh, more money in their lives, and more happiness in their lives than married moms and married dads, contra a lot of, a lot of the media and online narratives out there. What is the current state of marriage in the U.S.? How would you summarize it? So I've just kind of given you some good news. The bad news is that we're seeing what I call for adults, a kind of closing of the American heart, where dating is down, marriage is down, childbearing is down. And there are two statistics that kind of give you a sense of what this means for ordinary Americans. One is that for prime-aged adults, what we are now seeing is that there are more adults aged 1855 who are single and childless, basically kinless, than there are prime-aged adults who are married with children. And so, you know, that just kind of changes the fabric of American life in obvious and important ways. The second related point is we are projecting that about a third of young adults today, you know, in their 20s, will never marry. And we're going to have a record number then of bachelors and bachelorettes in our country going forward. And actually, that's bad news because people are more likely to flourish when they have a spouse and kids, and that's not what we're seeing today. So why does marriage itself matter? Marriage matters because we are, as Aristotle said, social animals. And we are hardwired to connect, and we're more likely than to flourish when we have you know, a co-pilot to travel through life with. And by contrast, when we're kind of living on our own as single people, and I'm talking here, of course, about averages, we know there are exceptions, but when we're single, we're much more likely to sort of feel like our lives are meaningless or that we are lonely or that we don't have someone to kind of be in our corner when the chips are down or when the you know, slings and arrows of life hit us. American elites often work against marriage publicly while privately enjoying the institution for themselves. Tell us about this 
irony. Yeah, so what I talk about in the book and then also in a recent article in The Atlantic is the way in which many of our elites talk left and walk right. So one example that I give is that we did a poll in California and we found that among college-educated Californians that a large majority of them were supportive of what's called you know, family diversity. And fewer Californians who were not college-educated were supportive of family diversity. Was, the question was, do you support, I think, basically family diversity? And then we looked at who was stably married in California. And we found that basically 80% of college-educated parents were stably married compared to about uh, 60% of less educated Californians. So what I'm saying to you then is that in California, many elites would kind of give at least nominal support for this idea that all family forms are equal, that we shouldn't have any kind of moral valuations or judgments made in terms of family structure or marriage and whatnot. That's their public posture, right? But then when it comes to their own private lives, they are living lives that are oriented, organized, and directed towards strong and stable marriages. One concrete example from California is I look at Reed Hastings, who is the co-founder of Netflix. I'm just going to talk about how some of the programming on Netflix isn't particularly family-friendly, and in particular, they have a, a movie that they did called Marriage Story, got a lot of critical acclaim. It paints a very dystopian, a very negative portrait of an elite couple moving from New York City to Los Angeles and having their marriage fall apart over what I would view as not really <laughs> important issues to divide a, a couple. So I was just kind of painted at you know, one more kind of negative portrait of American marriage. Now, the irony is that we actually see among college-educated Americans that divorce is down and that a clear majority of college-educated Americans are staying married. So it's kind of not representing that you know, empirical reality. And then Reed Hastings himself writes about in his autobiography how he and his wife had some marital difficulties early on in their marriage. I think he was traveling too much. He went to see a counselor. They worked out the issues and they've since been stably married. They've got two kids. I think they've been together more than 30 years. So my sense is that Reed Hastings and his family are doing just great. He's probably, you know, pretty marriage oriented and his family benefits from the institution of marriage. And yet his company, arguably, especially when it comes to Netflix or some of the offerings that Netflix gives to the public, aren't particularly marriage friendly. And that's just kind of one example of how this plays out in practice. Tell us about the ideological and religious polarization on marriage in the U.S. today. So what we're seeing today is that, you know, a good number of young men are moving to the right, I think influenced in part by what they're coming across on the internet. And then at the same time, an even larger number of young women are moving left. And of course, there are plenty of young adults who are in the middle and these currents are not a big deal for them. But there's a decent minority on kind of both sides. And again, they're kind of moving in different directions. And what that means is that for every two liberal women, there's probably around one liberal guy. And for every two conservative men, there are about you know, one conservative woman. And that just means there's going to be greater difficulty finding someone who matches along ideological lines. And that's a meaningful kind of problem because today, especially younger adults are more likely to be sort of considering politics as one factor that's going to sort of guide their dating life. So I talked to a young woman in the Southeast, for instance, and she had a couple of different boyfriends 
And she actually said that a lot of her more progressive boyfriends were not as interested in commitment and marriage. But two of her boyfriends who were interested more in marriage, you know, were more conservative. And I think one was a supporter of Trump. And, and that was a factor in kind of ending their relationship together. She didn't want to date someone or marry someone who was a supporter of Donald Trump. So that just gives you kind of a concrete example of the ways in which this ideological polarization can further dampen basically the fortunes of dating, love, and marriage in America. And this is something that I talk about in the book, Get Married. You identify four groups that are still building marriages and families introduce us to those groups? Yeah, so I think one of the pieces of good news beyond what we've already discussed is that there are four groups of Americans who've kind of been able to figure out their own strategies for forging strong and stable marriages, generally speaking. And those four groups are Asian Americans, are religious Americans, that call them the faithful in the book, college-educated Americans, they call them the strivers in the book. They're kind of more forward-thinking, focused on education, professional success. And then finally, conservative Americans. And Todd, to be honest with you, I didn't anticipate including conservatives as a separate group. I thought my groups would be Asian Americans, religious Americans, and college-educated Americans. But in running the statistics for this project with my colleague, Dr. Wendy Wang, what we found is that conservatives were meaningfully different in terms of getting married and in terms of being happily married than liberals and moderates. And that was true even controlling for other background factors like education and race and ethnicity. So those are the four groups. And if you're in one of those groups, you're more likely today to be married and you're more likely to either be stably married or happily married. So how do you answer the assertion that marriage doesn't benefit men or women? Well, it's important to kind of just front load two different perspectives that have been articulated a lot lately. So in the sort of liberally mainstream media, basically, there are a lot of writers who are saying things like women who stay single and childless are richer. This is a, basically the argument in a Bloomberg piece that came out not too long ago. There's New York Times articles basically talking up this idea that marriage and motherhood are misery-inducing. Or you get other articles in the Times kind of celebrating being a single woman. So I think there's this kind of idea that for women especially, marriage can be a dead end. You know, you can be subjected to too many constraints in your life, to a guy who doesn't pull his load, all this set of concerns. But now we're seeing from the online right kind of a similar catalog of problems with marriage, but they're focusing on men. And they say there's kind of no return on investment for marriage for men. I think you have people like Andrew Tate and Pearl Davis, for instance, who are kind of members of the what's called the red pill right, you know, the online right. They've got big online platforms. And they also would argue, too, that most marriages end in divorce and most men don't want to get divorced. So there's just a lot of men who are left high and dry by divorce in our society. Now, of course, each of these different camps, the liberal, more feminist-leaning you know, mainstream uh, writers and authors and professionals and professors, and then the more kind of right-wing online influencers have a point to make in all of this, but they exaggerate the challenges facing ordinary people and ordinary couples. And they also don't tend to emphasize two important social facts. And those are that most married men and women are happily married and that most marriages today go the distance. That older statistic that would sort of predict that one in two marriages end in divorce is no longer true. Most couples today will go the distance and avoid ending up in divorce court. 
We're making the case for natural marriage. Dr. Brad Wilcox is our guest professor of sociology and director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. On the other side, we often hear that love makes a family. Is this true? Try, 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 and you will only come to this conclusion. Love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage down. Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. Join Lutherans for Life at the For Such a Time as This Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award-winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration. The 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org conferences. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Criticism. I just had to call in to respond to this week's installment of Never Trump Drivel from Terry Mattingly. Compliments. I love the interviews and insights because they help me battle the slings and arrows of outrageous theology and practice. Clarification. Is there a point where, without baptism, infants go to heaven, and after which time they go to hell if they're not baptized? The Issues Etc. Comment Line, 618-223-8382. Memorial Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. We're talking about the case for natural marriage. Dr. Brad Wilcox is our guest, author of the new book, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. Dr. Wilcox, we often hear that love makes a family. Is this true? Well, one of the things that I talk about in the book is what I call the family diversity myth. And this is this idea that, again, love and money really matter for kids. And the exact configuration of family, not so important. Marriage, not so important. And there are plenty of examples that I run across as a scholar of other scholars making this claim, and then lots of examples in the media, and then nowadays on social media as well. There's even a beer commercial that kind of made this point with a, a very kind of positive gloss on uh, you know, this very complicated family at Christmas time that they were celebrating in this beer commercial. So we're kind of seeing the family diversity model articulated and referenced and glorified in a variety of contexts. Now, the problem, of course, with this theory is it's, it's not correct. So what we tend to see is that kids who are raised in non-intact families are more likely to be floundering you know, educationally, socially, emotionally. The most dramatic statistic that I 
kind of discovered with my colleague, Dr. Wendy Wang, is that boys who are raised in a non-intact family are more likely to go to jail or prison than they are to graduate from college. And by contrast, boys raised in an intact married family with their own parents are four times more likely to graduate from college than they are to go to prison or jail. So again, this idea that all family forms are equal is not true. And on average, kids are more likely to get the love and the money they need to thrive in an intact married family. We know, for instance, that intact married families have more money. It's not just because they're bringing in more money from the first place, but because just getting married tends to stabilize your relationship. What is the soulmate myth, and why is it dangerous? So I wrote a piece last weekend in the Wall Street Journal in anticipation of Valentine's Day, and I made the point that, yes, romance is important, in starting a relationship and in sustaining a marriage. But if you think it's the only thing that's going to bind you together, well, I think you're in for a rather rude surprise because feelings are not a good foundation for marriage. And so what we see is that people who think that love is just about, or marriage is just about, you know, that intense erotic or romantic connection, those kind of butterflies in the stomach, um, are going to find out that, you know, that woman or that man they thought was kind of perfect, we had that kind of perfect connection, we seem to understand that, you know, completely in every way, ends up being a little bit imperfect after the wedding date, you know, doesn't quite have all the perfect virtues, doesn't have that incredible ability to always connect with them. And if you are under the misimpression that the soulmate perspective is the way to organize your love and organize your marriage, you're going to be, I think, upset with the challenges and realities of conflict and compromise and forgiveness and patience that are required to have two you know, imperfect people living and working and loving together. And by contrast, folks who have what I call a family first model, where they run, understand that, yeah, love, romance matters, but also the kids matter, and the money matters, and the kin matter, and we're kind of forging, you know, building a family and a legacy together are more likely to be flourishing. Not just more likely to steer clear of divorce court, which is what the evidence suggests, but also more likely to be happily married. I think that's because they've got more realistic understandings about marriage, and they don't just see it as a, an emotional connection. You write a lot about the the me-first mentality that has done so much to damage marriage. What's the alternative to that me-first mentality in marriage? Well, the alternative is a we-before-me approach to marriage. And what we find is that couples who kind of really think about their marriage in terms of us and our family are more likely today to be flourishing. And I'm thinking in particular of like one example I talk about in the book, and that's the example of joint checking accounts. And what we see is that couples who have joint accounts are about 13 percentage points more likely to be very happy in their marriages and about 18 percentage points more likely to be reporting that divorce is not at all likely in their marriages. Now, I think kind of a perceptive thinker or critic would say, well, of course, Brad, the kinds of people who pool their money are just different in other ways that help to explain why having joint accounts is so correlated with better marital outcomes. It doesn't cause them. But there's a new study out from Indiana University that randomly assigned newlywed couples to joint and separate accounts and found that couples who were randomly assigned to joint accounts 
were more likely to be flourishing in the first two years of marriage compared to those who were assigned separate accounts. So it's a very kind of concrete empirical illustration of what looks like a causal relationship and again, kind of taking a we-before-me approach to money, as with many other things in your marriage, seems to be the path to increasing your likelihood of being happily ever after. What are the biggest contributors to divorce? When it comes to divorce, I would say that there are a number of factors that are um, driving divorce today, really since the, the late 1960s. And one, in all honesty, is the fact that you know people are imperfect and there are bad husbands and bad wives out there who might have a drinking problem or an infidelity problem or even most importantly, an abuse problem. And so that would be a legitimate, I think, set of reasons for parting ways. But we also have in this culture really since the 60s much higher expectations for an emotional connection. That's kind of the soulmate issue, you know, which can lead people down to divorce court. We also have situations more and more it seems like where men are not working full-time they're not kind of bearing their financial burden in the marriage and that's a huge predictor of divorce as well we have more secular couples out there today and, and they're more likely to end up in divorce court and then too we see the couples who are not kind of setting aside quality time like regular date nights are more likely to land in divorce court as well and then couples where the wives report their husbands aren't very protective of them. They're not looking out for them, you know, both in terms of their physical safety, but also in terms of just their well-being, like at a party, kind of making sure that your wife is, feels comfortable and she's well attended to. That's a, you know, a dynamic, too, that looks like it's linked to an increased proneness for divorce. So these are the kinds of factors that are, I think, relevant today in understanding why, uh, to some extent, divorce has risen since the 60s and also why some couples are more likely to end up seeing their unions dissolve. How has having children fallen out of favor in our culture? So we have seen the fertility rate fall since 2009, where it was about replacement levels, about 2.1 kids per woman on average, to about 1.6 now. And what we're projecting, my colleague, Dr. Lyman, I mean, Demographer Lyman Stone is projecting that about one in four young adults today will never have kids, new record in terms of childlessness. So what's going on here, I think, in part is that people are worried that kids might in some way kind of hamper their lifestyle, make them have less fun, less freedom. I think, too, they're worried about kind of the expense of raising kids, the opportunity costs of raising children, vis-a-vis work, keeping both your feet in full-time work for both partners if they're married or dating, for instance. And there's just kind of more what I call a Midas mindset where a lot of young adults are prioritizing education, money, and especially work over marriage and childbearing. And so they're postponing kids or they're foregoing kids. What they don't realize, they don't recognize is that, yes, having children can be stressful. I have a number of kids and everything from homework to sports to the occasional ER trip to late nights with babies or the sullen teenager on a weeknight. These are all stressful and, and difficult things. But there's just no question that parents report lives that are more meaningful and that are less lonely and also more happy because on average, our children bring us great joy. Dr. Brad Wilcox is our guest. We're talking about the case for natural marriage. On the other side, what do we know about the relationship between religion and strong marriages?
You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. A number of people have asked about Ad Crucem's process to order our first stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther Rose cling available on the website. Pop on over to adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race, and Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception, all life is precious from womb to tomb, and every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Welcome back. Dr. Brad Wilcox is our guest, author of the new book, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. We're talking about natural marriage. Dr. Wilcox, what do we know about the relationship between religion and strong marriage? Well, it's interesting you ask the question. There was a New Yorker piece uh, not too long ago that basically was arguing that kind of religion has a baleful impact on American life. This New Yorker article was entitled, A Sociologist of Religion on Protestants, Porn, and the Purity Industrial Complex. And just having me say that title probably gives you a very good sense of what the thesis of this article was. It was basically an interview with a sociologist. It kind of gave us the impression that Christian men are porn-addled and that their wives are upset with them over their use of pornography and they're more likely to get divorced and everyone's depressed and miserable. It was just a very kind of, again, kind of negative take on the link between faith and family, focusing on evangelicals in this case. And of course, it is the case, not surprisingly, that religious men who have a more sacred view of sex, who are married to religious women who also have a more sacred view of sex, are more likely to be conflicted over pornography and more likely to be guilty for using pornography. No, no surprise there. What this New Yorker article completely ignored was that on average, 
Americans who are religious are more likely to endow not only sex with a certain degree of sacredness, but to have more sex. And what was kind of most striking to me about the research that I did on adults was that about two-thirds of church-going couples have sex at least once a week. By contrast, secular couples have sex less than once a week. So religious couples have more sex, and they're also significantly more likely to say that they're happy with their sexual lives and then just happy with their marriages in general. And we do see, again, that Christians, church-going Americans, are between 30 and 50% less likely to get divorced. So these positive findings were completely excluded, really, from this New Yorker article. And it's just sort of one example of the way in which too often our elites are painting a negative portrait of the impact or the role that faith plays in American family life. How has the U.S. political class actively undermined marriage? So I think here it's often kind of a sin of omission. And I think the sin of omission for conservative Republicans has been not recognizing that in some ways the state can play a constructive role in advancing strong and stable families. And the sin of omission for uh, Democrats is not recognizing that, you know, the family should have its own kind of institutional integrity and that the state, you know, should not kind of take over every function of family life lest you kind of weaken the character and the strength of the family. So one example of this, for instance, is that a lot of our welfare programs, things like Medicaid, for instance, penalize marriage. And I show kind of some research and literature on that uh, topic in the book, but I've also talked to a lot of couples in Virginia that have explained to me, for instance, working class couples, that Medicaid penalizes marriage. I was talking about marriage, for instance, at a restaurant in Charlottesville, Virginia, not too long ago. And after the event was over, one of our waitresses approached me and she said, well, actually, my husband and I well, were actually not legally married. And so I was asking, why, why is that? And she said, well, I'm on Medicaid and so are our two children. And if we were to combine our incomes and get married and report those incomes to the government, we would lose access to Medicaid, both for me and for my children. And their, you know, the restaurant didn't have health insurance either. So what we have here, again, is that there's just the way in which we've kind of organized our means-tested programs ends up penalizing now many working-class marriages, and we can and, and we should address those by minimizing marriage penalties in our welfare programs. You list five pillars of family-first marriage. What are they? So they are communion, children, commitment, cash, and community. And I'll just kind of give you a quick sense of three of those, communion, commitment, and community. And what we see in my book is that couples who foster a sense of communion, that we before me orientation, but also kind of cultivating intimacy between one another are more likely to be flourishing. And I gave, you know, the example in the book of kind of regular date nights being linked to happier marriages, more sexually satisfied marriages, and also it looks like less divorce. So just fostering that sense of communion and that intimacy is important. When it comes to commitment, kind of embracing classic norms about fidelity and classic norms about seeing marriage as a lifelong relationship and not kind of injecting the D word, divorce, into marital conflicts, these things are also linked to stronger and more stable marriages. And then when it comes to community, kind of surrounding yourself with friends and family who take marriage seriously, both for themselves and for you, and who you know are not kind of more me first in their orientation. So people who have 
friends with good marriages and good families are more likely themselves to have good marriages and good families because they're often challenged in good ways, they're inspired in good ways, and they're supported in constructive ways when they're facing life's difficulties. And in the book, I talk about how when it comes to community, oftentimes it's religious institutions, churches, synagogues, temples, for instance, that are more likely to have lots of social networks that are family-friendly that tend to help us forge strong and stable marriages and families. What public policies best support strong marriages and families? So when you talk about kind of the role of public policy, there are plenty of naysayers out there who say that nothing can be done to really strengthen marriage in America. What they don't appreciate, don't recognize, is that we already have in our biggest federal agency a very strong and largely effective marriage policy, and that is the United States military. In the military, if you're dating someone, that someone doesn't get health care and doesn't get housing. If you are cohabiting with that someone, that someone doesn't get housing and doesn't get health care. But if you're married to that person, you get better housing and better health care and other benefits in the military as well. And not surprisingly, we see that men who've served or are serving the military are much more likely to be married than men who have not. This includes African-Americans, and it includes working-class men, both of whom are less likely in the general civilian population to marry. So just a strong connection between marriage and the military just kind of shows us that when the government gets behind a more marriage-friendly agenda, you really can kind of basically reinforce the importance of marriage. So I think when it comes to other policies, like the child tax credit, for instance, we should be more affirmatively supporting marriage with like a 20% bonus for the child tax credit for married couples compared to unmarried couples or compared to single parents. That would be an example of what we could do besides trying to end the marriage penalty on the public policy front. Is marriage for everyone? Of course not. I mean, obviously some people are not interested in marriage. Some people would kind of report that they have a call to singleness, you know, if they're religious in one community or another. And some people are not going to be able to find, especially today, a spouse. And it's important to acknowledge and and work with that reality, both at the society level and in our personal lives. And so I think one challenge for us as we go forward is just to be more intentional about bringing singles into our social lives. So we have a a couple of friends, one who's our age and one who's an older woman who's in a nursing home not too far from us who are single and you know just try to figure out ways to have dinner with them and to socialize with them or visit with them just because, as I said before, it often is, even though not always the case, that being single is more challenging. Dr. Brad Wilcox is professor of sociology and director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. He's the Future Freedom Fellow at the Institute for Family Studies and author of the new book, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. You can purchase this book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Wilcox, thank you very much. Thank you, Todd, for having me here today. Friday on Issues Etc., we'll talk to Dr. Jordan Cooper of Just and Sinner, about five proofs that Christ's true body and blood are present in the sacrament. I'm Todd Wilkin. Get married and stay married. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc., 
Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com.